Welcome to Duality Check, the podcast where two brothers embark on a thrilling journey through the realms of scientific inquiry, the enigmatic mysteries of the past, and the uncharted territories of spirituality. Join us as we explore the wonders of our world and beyond, all while embracing the roles of curious bystanders rather than experts. Together, we'll unravel the intricate tapestry of existence, blending the dichotomies of knowledge and wonder. Get ready to question, ponder, and delve into the dualities that shape our understanding of reality on Duality Check. I'm Drew. And I'm Dean. Welcome back. We are... This is episode four now. Episode four. Woo. Yeah, we're t- cooking today. We're gonna be talking about <laughs> economics <laughs> and pencils. <laughs> pencils mostly. No, I'm just kidding. Economics mostly. But uh, I'm sure if you know anything about economics, you probably know what we're talking about when we say pencils. Yeah, and if economics has always been something that is like super, super boring to you, don't tune out yet. We're yeah. going to start out with a little short story that will hopefully be pretty interesting. Um, and then we're going to cover like some real basic stuff and talk about what is it in the first place and different schools of thought on it. Yeah, and we'll probably uh, say some things that might make you question some of your um, established knowledge or thoughts on the way economics works, maybe. Right. And if you happen to know more about economics, if you went to school for it or you've read up about it, uh, chances are uh, you may not have heard of the school of thought we're going to be talking about today. So, Yeah, and if you do and we say something that you don't agree with, email us. Yes. Let us know your thoughts. Let's have a discussion. Yeah, and if you, you know like what we have to say or you don't like what we have to say it doesn't matter right we're not here to preach we're just here to share ideas and have an interesting conversation absolutely so uh what are we reading it is called i pencil um who's the author uh author is a guy named leonard reed he was That's born right. in the late 1800s like 1890s died in the 1980s yeah, he lived a long time. Yeah. He was a founder of an organization called um, Foundation for Economic Education, FEE. Um, FEE 504. <laughs> yeah, I'm not um, an expert on this, too, so I'll be reacting alongside most of you. <laughs> Dean has done a lot of this research and... Has yeah. I've nerded out on this stuff for a lot of years. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'll be very good at explaining it or that I know everything, but yeah. And I'm going to try to ask some uh, interesting questions, and hopefully we'll, well, hopefully we'll uh, have something good to talk about with this. Cool. So, so yeah, this is a short essay. Um, it is written from the point of view of a pencil. 
It will be Pencil Drew talking to you here. Pencil Drew here. <laughs> here we go. I pencil. I am a lead pencil. The ordinary wooden pencil familiar to all boys and girls and adults who can read and write. Writing is both my vocation and my avocation. That's all I do. You may wonder why I should write a genealogy. Well, to begin with, my story is interesting, and next, I am a mystery. More so than a tree or a sunset or even a flash of lightning, but sadly, I am taken for granted by those who use me as if I were mere incident and without background. This supercilious attitude relegates me to the level of the commonplace. This is a species is that say species? Yeah. This is a species of the grievous error in which mankind <clears throat> cannot too long persist without peril. For the wise G.K. Chester, 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 hold on, let me try. Chesterton, God, <laughs> <laughs> observed, we are perishing for want of wonder, not per- for perishing. want of wonders. Yeah. Perishing, gosh. It does look like Pershing. Yeah. Let me read that one more time. For the wise G.K. Chesterton observed, we are perishing for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. I pencil, simple though I appear to be, merit your wonder and awe, a claim I shall attempt to prove. In fact, if you can understand me, no, that's too much to ask for of anyone. If you can become aware of the miraculousness which I symbolize, you can say, help save the freedom mankind is so unhappily losing. I have a profound lesson to teach, and I can teach this lesson better than can an automobile or an airplane or a mechanical dishwasher because, well, I am a seemingly so simple. Simple, yet not a simple person on the face of earth of this earth knows how to make me not a single person. Yeah. Not, not a single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me. This sounds fantastic. Doesn't it? Especially when it is realized that there are about one and a half billion of my kind produced in the USA each year. Pick me up and look me over. What do you see? Not much meets the eye. There's some wood lacquer, a printed labeling. A, yeah the printed labeling, graphite lead, a bit of metal, and an eraser. Innumerable innumerable antecedents. So before we get into that section, just out in this intro, I love that quote. We are perishing not, or we are perishing for a want of wonder, not a want of wonders. Like there's so much around us to be amazed of, and we're not perishing because we have too few things to be amazed of. We're perishing because we don't, we're not amazed by them. Right, we take stuff for granted. Right, it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a human characteristic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's what we do. We adapt, mm-hmm. um, and part of a- adapting to something is just like coming to see it as normal. Yep, and yeah, I mean you see that in every facet of life. You you become so used to it that you are just. I mean, even I'll, I'll give you the example of being a parent. You know, like you're so used to seeing your kids do cute, funny amazing things that every time you're around other people that haven't seen your kids in a while or whatever, and they see them do those things. Not that I don't, I I mean, I, yes, I do because it's human nature, but you know, you, you forget and you see it and you're like, you know, 
Right. You're it taken aback awesome. by like, yeah, the the seeing things through other people's eyes or realizing yeah. how amazing something is that you see all the time. Yeah, and even, you know, another example of obviously with kids is they see the world so differently and it's so amazing to them. And mm-hmm. you have to see it through their eyes, right, you know. Right. Everything is new. Every single thing they do. Yeah, something about growing up like we start to gain a picture for how the world works. And at some point we kind of call it good and we stop being as curious. Right. So it's a skill to like keep that curiosity, keep that wonder. Yeah. And it's almost like, uh, um, being, having the ability to have kids and like, you know, go through that or, you know, nephews and nieces or any young ones in your life, like try looking at the world through their eyes, ask them questions and, you know, talk to them a little bit and you'll see like a lot of the things that you take for granted are just absolutely just amazing to them. And they'll, they'll want to talk about it for hours. So yeah, we'll go on here. Innumerable antecedents. Just as you cannot trace your family tree back very far. So it is impossible for me to name and explain all my antecedents but I would like to suggest enough of them to impress upon you the richness and complexity of my background. My family tree begins with what is in fact a tree, a cedar of straight grain that grows in Northern California and Oregon. Now contemplate all the saws and trucks and rope and the countless other gear used in harvesting and carting the cedar logs to the railroad siding Think of all the persons and the numberless skills that went into their fabrication, the mining of ore, the making of steel, and its refinement into saws, axes, motors, the growing of hemp, and bringing it through all the stages to heavy and strong rope, the logging camps with their beds and mess halls, the cookery, and the raising of all the foods. Why, untold thousands of perp persons had a hand in every cup of coffee the loggers drink. The logs are shipped to a mill in San Leandro, California. Can you imagine the individuals who make flat cars and rails and railroad engines and who construct and install the communication systems incidental thereto? These legions are among my antecedents. Consider the millwork in San Leandro. The cedar logs are cut into small pencil-length slats, less than one-fourth of an inch in thickness. These are kiln-dried and then tinted for the same reason women put rogue on their face. It's rouge. Rouge. I was wondering. That's like a fancy word. Yeah. Makeup. makeup, Yeah. Or blush, I guess. Yeah. I don't know why I said rogue. It's a similar spelling. Yeah. Rouge on their faces. People prefer that I look pretty, not a pallid white... The slats are waxed and kiln dried again. How many skills went into the making of the tint and the kilns, into supplying the heat, the light and power, the belts and motors, and all the other things in the, a mill requires? Sweepers in the mill along my <clears throat> sweepers in the mill among my ancestors. That's a question. Sorry, <laughs> sweepers in the mill um, among my ancestors. <laughs> yes. And included are the men who poured the concrete for the dam and the uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company hydro plant, which supplies the mill's power. Don't overlook the ancestors present and distant who have a hand in transporting 60 carloads of slats across the nation. Once in the pencil factory, 
$4 million in machinery and building, all capital accumulated by thrifty and saving parents of mine. Each slat is given eight grooves by a complex machine, after which another machine lays lead and every other slat applies glue and places another slat atop. A lead sandwich, so to speak. Seven brothers and I are mechanically carved from this wood-clinched sandwich. My lead itself, it contains no lead at all, is complex. The graphite is mined in Ceylon, Sri Lanka. Consider these miners and those who make their mini tools and the makers of the paper sacks in which the graphite is shipped and those who make the string that ties the sacks and those who put them aboard the ships and those who make the ships... (laughs) Even the lighthouse keepers along with the assisted along the way assisted in my birth and the harbor pilots. The graphite is mixed with clay from Mississippi in which ammonium hydroxide is used in refine, in the refining process. Then wetting agents are added such as sulfonated tallow, animal fats chemically reacted with sulfuric acid. After passing through numerous machines, the mixture finally appears as endless extrusions. As from a sausage grinder, cut to size, dried, and baked for several hours at 18, at 1,850 degrees Fahrenheit. To increase their strength and smoothness, the leads are then treated with a hot mixture, which includes candelilia, candelilia? something like that, wax from Mexico, paraffin wax, and hydrogenated natural fats. My cedar receives six coats of lacquer. Do you know all the ingredients of lacquer? Who would, who would think that the growers of castor beans and the refiners of castor oil are a part of it? They are. Why, even the processes by which the lacquer is made, a beautiful yellow, involve the skills of more persons than one can enumerate. Observe the labeling. That's a film formed by applying heat to carbon black mixed. Carbon black mixed with resin. How do you make resins? And what, pray, is carbon black? My bit of metal, the ferrule, is brass. Think of all the persons who mine zinc and copper and those who have the skills to make shiny sheet brass from those products of nature. Those black rings on my, on my ferrule are black nickel. What is black nickel and how is it applied? The complete story of why the center of my ferrule has no black nickel on it would take pages to explain. Then there's my crowning glory, inelegantly referred to in the trade as the plug, the part man uses to erase the errors he makes with me, an ingredient called factice. It is what does the erasing. Yeah, an ingredient called factice is what does the erasing. It is a rubber-like product made by reacting rapeseed oil from the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia, with sulfur chloride. Rubber, contrary to the common notion, is only for binding purposes. Then, too, there are numerous vulcanizing and accelerating agents. The pumice comes from Italy and the pigment which gives the, the plug its color, is cadmium sulfide. 
That so, yeah. is wow. A lot. It's crazy. Like wow. Until you read something like this, I remember my first time reading this. I was like, Jesus, like something so simple. Like just yep. it involves the entire world. It involves shipping. It involves engineering. It involves just so many trades, disciplines, power. Like it's it's not just take some wood, take some rubber, no. take some metal, wrap it around, stick some lead on the inside. Like it's right. And obviously, like there might be some people thinking, um, sure, you can make a pencil-like object. Oh, of course. Like you could, like um, um, you could just get a stick and burn it a little bit and just rub it. Right, right. But we're talking making like the standard yellow number two pencil that yep. we all see in school. Like it looks simple. We all take it for granted, but yep. it's incredibly complex. Yeah, I mean, the pencil had to. I mean, and obviously this this is the pencil is the example we're using, but there's so many things that are dependent on other industries and other infrastructure having already been set up and mm-hmm. all these things already already being in existence. So right. You want to f- go on the next one? Sure. The next section is called No One Knows. Does anyone wish to challenge my earlier assertion that no single person on the face of this earth knows how to make me? Actually, millions of human beings have had a hand in my creation, no one of whom even knows more than a very, f- more than very few of the others. Now, you must say that I go too far in relating the picker of a coffee berry in far-off Brazil and food growers elsewhere to my creation that this is an extreme position. I shall stand by my claim. There isn't a single person on all of these millions, including the president of the pencil company who contributes more than a tiny infinitesimal bit of know-how. From the standpoint of know-how, the only difference between the miner of graphite in Ceylon and the logger in Oregon is in the type of know-how. Neither the miner nor the logger can be dispensed with any more than can the chemist at the factory or the worker in the oil field paraffin being a byproduct of petroleum. Here's an astounding fact. Neither the worker in the oil field, nor the chemist, nor the digger of graphite or clay, nor any who who mans or makes the ships or trains or trucks, nor the one who runs the machine that doesn't that does the knurling knurling on my bit of metal, nor the president of the company performs his singular task because he wants me. Each one wants me less, perhaps, than does a child in the first grade. Instead, or indeed, there are some among this vast multitude who never saw a pencil, nor would they know how to use one. Their motivation is other than me. Perhaps it is something like this. Each of these millions sees that he can thus exchange his tiny know-how for the goods and services he needs or wants. I may or may not be among these items. Yeah, right. So that makes, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, the people who are shipping, you know, driving the ships across the ocean, they don't want pencils. They don't want pencils. They don't even realize that their job has anything to do with pencils necessarily. Maybe they realize like every once in a while, sure. Like it wouldn't surprise them if there were some pencils in, in, in one of the shipping containers, but they don't know that. Right. Well, if you talk about like the people mining and the stuff, people mining don't realize they that, don't know that this, you know, copper and zinc are going to end up in a pencil. No, 
Like no one, unless they're getting a direct. Yeah, you maybe maybe the person taking in the order right. knows. You know, these but like that they care farmers across the world growing castor beans. Like there's going to be people involved in this who don't even know how to read and write. Not, right. Not to belittle exactly. anyone, but no, like, yeah, exactly. It's because like they live their little life. They grow, they farm, they ship their products and they buy what they need for their families. Right. You know? like, like it says, they're exchanging their tiny know-how for the goods and services he needs and wants. Right. You know, they're just, they're just doing their thing in their corner of the world. And, and it just so happens that it's going to create a pencil. Right. Right. Yeah. No mastermind. There is a fact still more astounding. astounding. The absence of a mastermind, of anyone dictating or forcibly directing these countless actions which brings me into being. No trace of such a person can be found. Instead, we find the invisible hand at work. This is the mystery to which I earlier referred. It has been said that only God can make a tree. Why do we agree with this? Isn't it because we realize that we ourselves could not make one? Indeed, can we even describe a tree? We cannot, except in superficial terms. We can say, for instance, that a certain molecular configuration manifests itself as a tree. But what mind is there among men that could even record, let alone direct, the constant changes and molecules that transpire in the lifespan of a tree? Such a feat is utterly unthinkable. I, pencil... I'm a complex combination of miracles, a tree, zinc, copper, graphite, and so on. But to these miracles, which manifest themselves in nature, an even more extraordinary miracle has been added, the configuration of creative human energies. Millions of tiny know-hows configuring naturally and spontaneously in response to human necessity and desire, and in the absence of any human masterminding. Since only God can make a tree, I insist that only God can make me. Man can no more direct these millions of know-hows to bring me into being than he can put molecules together to create a tree. The above is what I meant when writing, if you can become of the aware of the miraculousness which I symbolize, you can help so save the freedom of mankind that is so unhappily, that mankind is so unhappily losing. For if one is aware that these know-hows will naturally, yes, automatically arrange themselves into creative and productive patterns in response to human necessity and demand. That is, in the absence of governmental or any other coercive masterminding, then one will possess an absolutely essential ingredient for freedom, a faith in free people. Freedom is impossible without this faith. Once government has had a monopoly of a creative activity, such, for instance, as the delivery of mails, most individuals will believe that the mails could not be officially delivered by men acting freely. And here's the reason. Each one acknowledges that he himself doesn't know how to do the things incident to mail de delivery. He also recognizes that no other individual could do it. These assumptions are correct. No individual possesses enough know-how to perform a nation's mail delivery. Any more than any individual possesses enough know-how to make a pencil. Now, in the absence of faith in free people, in the unawareness that millions of tiny know-hows would naturally and miraculously form and cooperate to satisfy this necessity, the individual cannot help but reach the erroneous conclusion that mail can be delivered only by government masterminding. You know, that's actually very timely with having just gone through Christmas and I'm sure other people have experienced this too. 
the USPS is probably the least efficient mm-hmm. when it comes to package delivery. When right. you're when you're going to to order something and you see USPS and there's another option, you choose the other option most of the time. Right. Usually. I mean, unless you're just going for like sheer cost, but like sure. as it gets close to Christmas, it's not about cost. It's about getting it's about efficiency. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's not just to shit on USPS. Like obviously there's a lot of hardworking people there and like they do a lot of, they do work obviously, but it's to show, and obviously this is not just Christmas either. Like there's times, <clears throat> there's been times in the past where they've almost collapsed because they just, they're inundated by what is most likely some kind of government oversight and policy that they are inundated. Like they're, they're forced to cooperate with. Right. And this is just to illustrate the point. It's bigger than the post office. It's anything that the government does. Exactly. Like we find ourselves like, so much later in time than Lysan- or than uh, Leonard Reed wrote this, and now the government does a lot more things that it didn't do before. It does yep. security at airports, and a lot of people could no longer imagine a world in which the government doesn't do security at airports. How could we possibly be safe on planes? Or um, imagine if the airlines did their own security. Yeah, I mean they. Ha- yeah, right. Or I mean any other thing that the government does. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, the the point is, is that a lot of these things actually have a history of being done before governments were involved in doing them. Yeah, it was more of like there was something that happened that caused a big outrage that instead of, of outsourcing it and allowing free enterprise or, or man to, to do, to fix the problem itself there was a government oversight and they were like, we're going to fix this problem immediately. Right. And we're going to institute all these different rules and regulations. And we're going to come up with this new department and it's Mm going to be the TSA. Right. You know? Right. And they, they tried to do it themselves. And, you know, for all, you know, most Americans at least like the TSA can be a bane of your existence if you travel a lot, or it could be a friend if you don't travel a lot and you know, Mm -hmm. you want to be safe. Obviously they, they do have a pretty good record so far, but, uh, people have tested. (laughs) There's like studies where people actually try and sneak pink things past them and they are like astoundingly successful at doing it. Really? Yeah. It's, it's actually like the more you look into it, it's a little creepy if that's thing. Well, I'm not going to look into that. Well, I also don't (laughs) travel airlines all the time. So yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'll go on here. Uh, Testimony galore is the next section. If I pencil were the only item that could offer testimony on what man and woman can accomplish when free to try, then those with little faith would have a fair case. However, there is testimony galore. It's all about us. and And on every hand, mail delivery is exceedingly simple when compared, for instance, to the making of an automobile or a calculating machine, or a grain combine, or a milling machine, or to tens of thousands of other things. Delivery? Why, in this area where men have been left free to try, they deliver the human voice around the world in less than one second. They deliver an event visually and in motion to any person's home when it is happening. They deliver 150 passengers from Seattle to Baltimore in less than four hours. 
They deliver gas from Texas to one's range or furnace in New York at unbelievably low rates and without subsidy. This is uh, obviously the 1800s. <laughs> no, this wasn't written then. It was like, yeah, 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 yeah. They deliver each four pounds of oil. Um, they deliver, yeah, they deliver each four pounds of oil from the Persian Gulf to our eastern seaboard, half around the world, for less money than the government charges for delivering an ounce, a one ounce letter across the street. I mean, even back in 1800s, whoa. I, no, the, he was born in like okay, late Okay, yeah, 1800s. right, right. So, so like, I think early he's like 30s, 40s or something so like, like that. Yeah, 1930s, but, 1940s, right. But the point is taken, like, it's when you can ship things across the globe for way cheaper than the government can deliver a postcard across the street. Yeah. It's what what is the difference between delivering a good or service across the world than delivering mail? And why is government taking it on to do our mail when all these companies, private companies are doing it more efficiently? Right. That's, there's, that's there's actually something. one last paragraph. Let's yeah. finish this and then we can talk about the it. The lesson I have to teach is this. Leave all creative energies uninhibited. Merely organize society to act in harmony with these le this lesson. Let society's legal apparatus remove all obstacles the best it can. Permit these, these creative know-hows freely to flow. Have faith that free men and women will respond to the invisible hand. This faith will be confirmed. I pencil, seemingly simple though I am, offer the miracle of my creation as testimony that this is a practical faith, a practical as practical as the sun, the rain, a cedar tree, and the good earth. Boom. What a beautiful little 10-page essay, man. Yeah, no, that was... I've read it a few times, but it's been a few, like a month or so since I read it last and when we first decided to do this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is, it's awesome when you can simplify such a, um, complex thought right to this. Right. And like really chew on something so simple and then expand it and expand it and expand mm -hmm. it and expand it until you realize that everything that you have looking around you, right? Everything around you is free market at work mm -hmm. is for, is man and women freely able to like, obviously there are, you know, some instances where that's not true. Right. But the government likes to stick its hands in the way of a lot of stuff. But the point being is that just allowing people to ex exert their creative know-hows to provide some sort of product, some sort of service, some sort of little bit of something somewhere that can get something done. And that little thing that gets something done is then taken as an input for the next thing. And, and then it's refined again, and then it's transformed, and then it's shipped across the world, and then it's combined with a bunch of other things. And then some entrepreneur somewhere starts some company, and he's like, I'm going to make a, I don't know, i got a microphone in front of me. I'm going to make a new, better microphone, right? Yeah. And I'm going to start a, a startup company about how great my microphones are. Yeah. And what do they do? They order all these raw materials that they have no clue how they're produced. Mm -hmm. You know, they just come in at some later point and try and, you know, improve the mousetrap or improve, yeah. 
you know, they, they put it together the in a process different configuration. of it because they think they can produce those with microphones the same way everyone else does, but should maybe just a little bit cheaper, you know, or even just a little bit better quality at the same price. Right. And so they weren't the ones that invented it. Like the invention of most things like goes back in a chain of, of events. It's, yeah. it's these little know-hows, these little incremental improvements, the complex network of people's creative talents Right. That brings the world we have to us. And honestly, like most people can probably attest to this is just like when you, when you think of like the most creative endeavors and like the most like obvious creative endeavors, like it's all just people doing what people do. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no, um, oversight as to how to do that thing. Right. Like obvious oversight other than the person themselves. You know, right. And at times in the past where humans have thought they're smarter than the invisible hand of the market and that they would control it and that they would dictate it all and that they would centralize all that production and decide what goes where those have ended in the greatest human suffering the world has ever known. Right. And that's important to keep in mind, like not, not that there aren't certain insights and things to learn from those systems of, obviously I'm talking about like socialism, but like, sure. um, but that you, you can't engineer the interactions of humanity. Humanity's too big. It's too complex. There's just too much. You yeah, can't there's know too it much, all. There's too much to it all, especially nowadays. This might not have been true 20 or, you know, 200 years ago. Right. But it is true. It, it, even then it was still true, but it was just on a smaller, smaller scale. But even you're talking about like the Roman empires and you're talking about like all these ancient civilizations, right? And they, mm-hmm. when the government tried to interject and, and force the, the different states to do what they wanted, things fell apart. Right. Yeah. So we're up on our first uh, break here. We'll, uh, we'll go check on the kids. Looks like Wyatt's meditating. <laughs> Sawyer's a starfish, but we're good here. Um, we'll see you in a bit. Adios.
words are. I like the beat, though. I love it. Yeah. So we're back. Welcome back to Duality Check. We're going to get all serious now because we're back. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> just because uh, we've done it every podcast so far, and we're going to keep doing it because why not? Our beer update. <laughs> we are drinking Lost Coast Hazy IPA. It's very straightforward. There's no fancy name. I mean, yeah. it's Lost Coast the Brewery. Yeah. And up then Hazy Eureka, California. I've actually been up to there before. Yeah. It's yeah. I went awesome. to the I went to the to the one in Eureka. Because Rachel my wife went to school up there. And uh, it's a it's a great it's actually good. Oh, six point seven percent. Sorry, Dad. Yeah, it doesn't meet your seven percent. Sorry, of. is it seven? Is that what he said recently? I don't know. I think that's about the range where he starts. He was uh, obviously. We're recording this just after Christmas. Um, Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year. Um, we are. We're recording this between Christmas and New Year, so Christmas yep. just passed for us. <clears throat> this will yep. be out in mid January or something like that for you guys. Yeah, so he got a sneak peek of our other, our other episodes that y'all probably have heard now. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully. And hopefully. And uh, go check him out if you haven't. He was so excited that we talked about his, yeah. uh, his beer tastes. Yeah. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in. <laughs> He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up. I'm going to show up with beers, and I'm going to bring the beers, and we're going to talk about the beer. I'm going to take over a mic. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, that sounds great. I'll just shout from the background. Yeah. We only we'll have two mics set up right now. We'll hear you. We'll turn off the noise gate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. It's uh, it's fun. He's a funny guy. You guys would enjoy it. You guys would very show. much enjoy him. And I know the people who know us know what we're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Lost Coast Hazy IPA, 6.7% alcohol. Um, it's tasty. I like this one a lot. It is good. It's very clean tasting. I was trying to read this label, but it's printed white on yellow. It's super hard to oh read. Oh, my God. It's terrible to read. So we're going to skip that. But look them up. The only words I saw were notably orange, <laughs> which I do taste. Yeah. yeah. All right. We'll get back into this here. Cool. So. What were we talking about? We had just finished the essay we were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, just kind of the nature of the free market and the invisible hand. and Yeah, we didn't actually talk about that much yet, but the invisible hand is like the idea yeah. of like the free market without government interference, right? Right. So uh, I believe the – well, it, it's not necessarily about it, the lack of government interference. Well, right. It's it, not it's government about, necessarily. It's about – it's about the fact that there is no central planner in economies, right? That's, right? Yeah, like it, exactly. it's about. I believe it was coined by Adam Smith when he wrote *The Wealth of Nations*, which is like kind of like a foundational economics mm. work. I forget even the era. I think it was in the 1700s, maybe even 70. earlier. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is like foundational economics. Foundational gotcha. economics, yeah. Um, the he was from like the classical school. Um, and uh, so he heavily influenced like the the founding fathers of America and a lot of thought at that time. Um, anyway, uh, I believe the invisible can- hand comes from him. Okay, but it's an interesting concept. Like, it's just the idea that you know things come together 
and you don't even as needed. realize yeah as how. needed yeah um so i did all these notes on the pencil itself that i don't know i want to really go into it's essentially I mean, repeating um there the was essay some, itself but i did some research and i'll share some of these links i, was that say, I thought yeah. were pretty interesting yeah, like i, I show say. i got some like videos of like um, actual pencil factories and how the pencils made. It is a I good some videos on like how dive to uh, go down. Milling wood is done. Yep. Uh, how different pigments work. Like yeah, this stuff is how the nickel is mined and like you know there's one how it's made of aluminum foil. Like all these different things. Yeah, that one's super <clears> interesting. <throat> it shows them like how uh, erasers are made. How they like they keep stretching it and stretching it and stretching it. It's until it breaks. Yeah. Like till it's like super well, thin. Until right? it's super thin. Yeah. yeah. Like, like a lot of people know that gold is super, is very, I don't know what the word for that is. Malleable. But malleable. Like you can take a small amount and spread it over a giant right, thing. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not giant, relative. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I looked into like foil stamping and man, it's crazy. The process of, of mining aluminum is super interesting. Um, well, that I mean, what, what your notes there are kind of pointed towards like they're not super repetitive. If you want to read that uh, or talk about it or whatever. Yeah, I just kind of have other places I'd like to go with this, but okay. like for instance, on like this aluminum on aluminum, so it comes yeah. from uh, processing a, a substance called bauxite, which is mined all over the world, but the biggest suppliers in, are in Australia and China. Ooh, um, that's a good gamer tag. The closest bauxite mine uh, here in America is in Arkansas. That's a big one, uh, and processing it into aluminum involves these chemical processes because aluminum isn't like super pure in the ground. You don't find like giant lumps of it. It's like distributed as like a component within metals, within like other, whatever sedimentary rock, the bauxite. Right. Mm -hmm. So like they have to subject it to all of these chemical processes to like erode and and sift and sort until you end up with aluminum. It's super mm. interesting, but I'll, I will link a bunch of these videos and this research I did. So if you want to like dig into some of this stuff, I, I encourage it because it's really interesting. Um, but in general, this whole thing is about the process of the free market and about economic thought in general. And that is really the point that I'd like to talk about because economics is super, to me, very interesting. Just real quick while you're pulling that up. Mm-hmm. In Earth's crust, aluminum is the most abundant metallic element, 8.2% by mass, and the third most abundant of all elements after oxygen and silicon. doesn't make it easy to get to, but... right. Just thought I'd point that out. So economics is an interesting thing. Like if you had to define economics, how would you try and define it? Um, I would say it's the practice of, um, yeah. Or the economy, I suppose. 
Yeah, I was going to say it'd be more of like, it's like the practice of maintaining a balance of goods and services and, and needs. Yeah, I would maybe say like. I don't know. A, that's more, it's a pretty basic way to say it, but. It's like the process of humans like producing and transforming objects to fulfill their need and exchanging. Exactly. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different schools of thought in economics. Yeah. Um, so the the most influential in America right now that actually has like the ear of most politicians that is behind a lot of the decisions that is behind a lot of the the financial policies and what whatnot is a school of thought called Keynesianism, which is, is Keynesianism. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Which okay. is because I was saying Keynesianism. Yeah, it's Keynes. It's John okay. John Maynard Keynes is, uh, the, is the oh that makes it okay is the guy who uh, is like kind of the founder of that tradition. That's with a K. That's what threw me off. Uh, yeah. So um, previous to uh, Keynesian, I don't think Keynesian invented this stuff, but back in time there was economics was done by like thinking like just thinking through how things work and trying to like tie together the logic of stuff. Um, and then mm. someone came along and decided that, you know, like we're the sciences are getting started and empiricism is getting going. So empiricism is the process of um, inductive thought, which is um, to gather data about the world and then sift and sort that data and hypothesize about it and then design experiments and gather more data and sift and sort and design experiments to constantly learn about the natural world and refine our knowledge about it. That's so it's science. It's called empiricism. Right, science. Well, more generally speaking, science could be defined as the process of just learning of gathering and systematizing knowledge about the world. So is this more um, pointed in a certain direction? So then? there's two schools, like th there's, th there's two sides of the coin. There's the empiricist side and then there's the, uh, there's the deductive side. So, so in empiricism is inductive and logic based stuff is deductive. So mathematics, geometry, mm. um, law, um, and originally economics are examples of deductive or logic-based sciences. So these are sciences based off of inductive thought? Uh, based off of deductive, right? So like... Well, yeah, like but they're geometry. based off of your so other... Like, your like other. If, if you go into a geometry class, right, and you're learning Pythagorean theorem... Um, but it's based off of other... Right, but it's based off of logic. Sure. It's built up by logic. So we don't we understand that the the Pythagorean theorem about the proportions of a triangle by building up logical rules. Yep. And we can prove that they are true without going out in the world and finding natural pyramids and taking a Measurement, tape measure yeah. and measuring the angles and taking a 
protractor. Right. You, you know? can you can do it without that. Right? So regardless of whether you go out in the world and you find a triangle and you go and you measure the sides and you measure the angles and right. then you come back and you're like, this doesn't match the Pythagorean theorem. My empirical evidence shows that the Pythagorean theorem is false. Mm. And the reason that doesn't work is because logic. Well, you can the the way that it's the built rules is rules of logic prove that the Pythagorean theorem is is true. That's where, like in geometry, right. you get into like proofs. If you can do a proper proof, it legitimately proves there's no ifs ands about it. There's no amount of going out in the world and collecting data that can er overturn that truth. That truth is rock solid. Well, and it also it's it's because instead of the human going out there and doing the measurements, it's done with just the numbers. It's done with just the reflecting thought. in yeah. your head. Yeah, I mean, and maybe using a pen and paper on, to like help you think. Right, you need visually. It, visually, you need some kind of stimulus to help with the thought. You know, some people do, some people don't. Well, of but, course, yeah. but still, even if you don't aren't visualizing it, there's still a visualization to be done there because you're talking about distances and you're talking about, you know, you know, formulas that that um, help distinguish the different distances and how they correlate with other things. So, yeah, so it's basically just the way of looking at the visual, the the three-dimensional world, but without needing to go in out and measure it yourself. Right. So we're talking about empirical knowledge, which by definition, empirical knowledge, because it relies on gathering data and hypothesizing about it to refine a theory and then going out and testing that theory with further experiments and more data in the natural world. Right. Um, the natural sciences have made tons of progress right. and we have this whole modern world because of it, but it's actually always open to revision. No empirical knowledge is a hundred percent proven because the nature of empiricism means that tomorrow you could go and take measurements and they're different. Right. And anyway, so Nothing, all knowledge in empirical thought is provisional. It's subject to refinement. It's subject to further study. To change, basically, yeah. Whereas in deductive logic, which is called like a priori, have you heard that term before? A priori? I have heard that, yeah. Yeah, so a priori knowledge is, is knowledge that you can arrive at without going out to the world to measure anything mm -hmm. without going out to the world to gather any evidence. It's knowledge that you can gather just upon reflection and clear and careful thinking. And in practice, like, it's basically like plugging them in a sense, like when we're talking about like geometry and like triangles, like if you're talking about that basic of a, of a thought, right? Mm -hmm. It's basically plugging in the numbers of the distances of each side of a triangle and knowing that there's going to be an angle that you can define. Right. So A player A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Exactly. Is not open to debate. Right. Because exactly. it has been formally proven. Exactly. And the angles that it creates and all of the different dimensions that it creates. So no matter what the actual numbers are, it's it's uh, it's going to be this and this and this and this and you can change the numbers on an infinite scale until you get to the, right. you know a circle but like you know what i'm saying like mm -hmm. it's it's 
you can just change the numbers and do it without having to go out and measure, oh, this triangle is this and this triangle is this. And you can, right. you know, this is the angle that it created right. because of that. Like I measured it. I know, you know, right. you don't need that in this because you can just plug the numbers and you can visualize the thing that you're trying to measure and all that. Right. And in fact, there's no perfect example of a triangle or of a circle in the real world, right? There's, there's no triangle or no right. circle that will be a hundred percent true, but we know the, the concept of one is it's governed yeah. by these logical principles yep. and there's no debate about it. So if you ever saw one, it'd be like, <sighs> right. So what actually, in, if you go out and measure a circle or measure a triangle and you come back and you say the Pythagorean theorem is wrong, all you're actually proving is that that wasn't a perfect triangle. Right. But perfect doesn't mean it wasn't a triangle. So it right. doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway, so. <laughs> but when you see one. <sighs> these two modes of knowledge, empiricism and a priori knowledge. Okay. okay. Now let's go back to economics. So yep. economics has split into one school that stayed on the a priori side of reasoning about economics, and then these modern schools of economics that have gone the empirical route. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's the big difference. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today the is the school of thought that stayed on the a priori side. That's Austrian economics, that is right? Austrian economics. And Keynesian is the empirical. Keynesian, there's also the Chicago school, if you ever heard of Milton Friedman. He's yep. like the founder mm -hmm. of the Chicago school. He's actually. Yeah. Actually. I, I, yeah. Okay. So recently just read about him. Uh, uh, the Chicago school is interesting because they're actually have in many respects, but not perfectly. They, they're very free market oriented, like the Austrian economists. Um, but the biggest difference between Chicago and Keynesian and Austrian is that, um, the Chicagoans and the Keynesians, they believe that you can, the best way to go about learning and doing the science of economics is to go out in the real world and write down numbers of prices and write down historical events of trades and gather all these statistics and then to take those statistics and try and suss out mathematical theorems that govern the economy as a whole. Mm. So they're going about economics in an empirical way. They're trying to reduce the entire economy to an equation. I see. So that they can then use that equation to predict if you tweak this or that lever in the future, that you can get this or that outcome. So they want to be able to predict is what they're what, like kind of basic, like they wanted to be able to, to predict. So they came up with a way to be able to predict. Right. Uh, which turns out to be incredibly useful for like governments and kings and people who try to run societies. Because you can predict. Because to them, their population is just a, a bunch of statistics. It's not these people. Are, these it's are faceless not, people. This yep. is their their no, their flock. No they don't companies. see them as a bunch of individuals. They see it as aggregate numbers that give them something. Right. And so yeah. they have a desire to push the economy in this way or that. So they're going to try and pull on these, these, uh, strings, you would call them, right. These different levers in mm -hmm. order to tweak the economy to move this yeah. way or that whatever strings might be available to them. So the Austrians are totally different, right? Uh, it was started by this guy named Karl Menger back in the 1800s. And then his student was a guy named Ludwig von Mises. 
That's the name I know. Yeah. So Mises was the first guy who completely systematized Austrian economics. So the other guy was more like theoretical. Well, he like, he laid all the groundwork for the, that, that style of knowledge. I mean, not all the groundwork, like we're talking. Where was he from? Just so I know. This is why it's called the Austrian school. Cause they come out of Austria. God, obviously. Yeah. That makes sense. I should have known that. <laughs> but so what, what time frame was that? So Carl Menger is a little bit older. Uh, Mises, uh, he's around in like the twenties and thirties and forties. Mm. Um, so it must as he's the like developing and all, of his, all of his theories. Um, he's also Jewish living mm. in Austria, right. Leading up to world war two where Hitler's going to take over. So he actually escapes Ooh. out of Europe. That's an interesting fact. And goes to America and starts teaching in America where he gets new students, uh, Murray Rothbard. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of sparks the Austrian movement in America. Gotcha. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. That's uh, that's an interesting fact, right? And that's an interesting time frame for that. And Hitler and the Nazis were not interested in a free market. They were interested in a command and control economy. Obviously, yeah. I mean, look at yeah. We won't get into yeah. So he wasn't very popular there. (laughs) So I actually, um, I'm taking. Um, an excerpt here that I want to read to you guys from a book called Man, Economist, and State by Murray Rothbard, who was a student of Mises. Um, and yeah. it's his uh, sort of synthesis of Austrian economics with libertarianism and like systematically going through Austrian economics. I would read from Mises, but his, I actually have been going over his books in preparation for the show, but his stuff is really dense and it can be a lot harder to follow the way like Rothbard words. A lot of this stuff is like a lot easier to follow. So Much more, uh, I'm going to go over the real basics, man. like the, the, the foundation of what it is, what okay. Austrian economics is built on. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So the distinctive and crucial, crucial feature in the study of man is the concept of action. Human action is defined simply as purposeful behavior. It is therefore sharply distinguishable from those observed movements from the point of view of man, which from the point of view of man are not purposeful. These actions include all the observed movements of inorganic matter and those types of human behavior that are purely reflex, that are simply involuntary responses to certain stimuli. Human action, on the other hand, can be meaningfully interpreted by other men, for it is governed by a certain purpose that the actor has in view. The purpose of a man's act is his end. The desire to achieve this end is the man's motive for instituting the action. All human beings act by virtue of their existence and their nature as human beings. We could not conceive of human beings who do not act purposefully, who do not have ends in view that the desire and attempt to attain. Things that did not act, that did not behave purposely, would no longer be classified as human. In this fundamental truth, it is this fundamental truth, this axiom of human action, that forms the key to our study. The entire realm of praxeology 
and its best developed subdivision economics is based on analysis of the necessary logical implication of this concept. The fact that men act by virtue of their being human is indisputable and incontrovertible. To assume the contrary would be an absurdity. The contrary, the absence of motivated behavior, would apply only to plants and inorganic matter. Whoa. That's yeah. an excerpt from Man, Economy, and State. Mm. So that's called yeah. the action axiom. And to try to argue against it is to be self-contradicting because you have to act in order to argue against the action axiom. Whoa. Yeah. No, that's a... Woo. That is, I mean, what can I say about it? So that's what I mean by a priori knowledge, by logic-based knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So by sitting there and thinking of the fact of the matter that humans act, you can draw an entire theory of what he calls praxeology. This is what Mises termed, termed it. Praxeology is just the study of human action. Hmm. Okay? And... Mises, as an economist, his biggest interest is in the division of human action that is trading and production, which he deems as economics. Okay. Right. But there's other types of human action. Obviously, yeah. That aren't about productive behavior, going to, you know, church or whatever. I mean, productive is a loose term in that sense. Because productive to, to whom? You know, if it's productive to you, then... Right. There are other ways you, that you can study human action, though. Right. Like sociological ways right. or historical ways or... Psychologically. Psychological ways. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. And I don't know if anyone's actually picked up, like, the praxeological style in those fields. I was going to say, yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yeah. So, that's, that's the foundation of Austrian economics. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. So... We can actually um, pull a bunch of insights and understandings from the fact that man acts. Right. Okay. You man. So as long as it is true that man acts, then you can use formal logic to unpack that statement and pull out other truths that are attached to the fact that man acts. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. So action is made up of employing scarce means guided by knowledge to achieve an end so that we can alter the course of events in a way that we wish to bring about. So we're trying to change the, the flow of time. We're trying to right some sort of discomfort. Yeah. And something that ails us. We want to fix. So yep. you're sitting on the couch and you start getting these hunger pangs. You want Doritos and you really Mountain want Doom, to keep obviously. like playing video games. And that's an action you're, <laughs> you're undertaking but this hunger is starting to come up, right? And so you look into the future and you see this hunger is getting worse and worse. And so you decide to act. And to attain that act, you will use the knowledge in your head that if I go to the fridge and I put together some ingredients and take those ingredients and put them in my mouth and chew them and swallow them, I won't feel that hunger anymore. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And you're using scarce means. Means is just like a fancy word for saying like whatever objects, whatever physical matter you need in order to attain that end, the yep. end being to satisfy your hunger. Yeah. Okay. So you can have a praxeological mm-hmm. analysis of the fact that you get off the couch and make a sandwich. 
so that's the first unpacking. Ten. So we now have new categories. We've got ends. We've got means. We've got knowledge. Yeah. We've got time because it takes time to do, to do an things, action. Yeah. There's no such thing as an action that doesn't take time to perform. Mm-hmm. And then we have the, we can build the idea that costs exist uh, yeah. logically because mm-hmm. the fact that I'm going to go to the fridge and make a sandwich means that at that same moment, I cannot continue sitting on my couch and playing video games. Mm-hmm. So I am, I am foregoing the cost of the enjoyment of video games because in my mind at that moment, I now value higher the the fulfillment of my hunger. Yeah. And so by choosing one action over another, you're now incurring costs. You can't do everything at the same time. Right. You have lots of things that you can do, but you're always going to, at any given moment, you can only be doing one. Yeah. So we now have the concept of cost. Yep. We have the concept of profit. because Personal costs we should... Personal right. cost. Well, yeah. everything is personal. Everything. Oh, sure. Everything in in Austrian uh, yeah, economics, yes. yeah, instead makes sense. of cost going is... from a society down to the individual, yeah. it all builds up from human action up to society. God. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as like cost goes, yeah. Right. So that's cost. There's mm-hmm. profit mm-hmm. because by going and making that sandwich, I now have either attained my goal and my hunger is fulfilled. So I have profited because I'm now in a better situation than I was before I did the action or I'm a terrible cook. I burned everything. My my, my oven caught on fire and I'm even more hungry than before. And it's still a cold sandwich. Right. <laughs> and now I'm, yeah. So I, it, I, that's loss. Right. Right. All of these concepts built on the fundamental idea that humans act. Right. Yeah. And in order to, con- to argue against those things, you have to argue against the fact that humans act. Because if humans act, these things are true. Because right. they logically come out of it. Yeah. Because obviously, like, imagine the first human, right? <laughs> they had no fucking clue what right. was going on. They were like, do I do- what do I do? Am I hungry? Mm-hmm. What do I do? I thought I just became not hungry. What is happening? Right. I get to make choices. We can build the idea of value, of valuation, because at any given moment, like I said, you're sitting there, there's like a million things you could be doing at any given moment. And when you sit and you're like, what do I want to do? Like you're going to sit and think in your head about the things you could do and whatever rises to the top as the most urgent or the most important to you you've now ranked that among the other things you could be doing as the highest rank thing. So we know that at that given moment, you value making the sandwich more than playing the video game. Because if you didn't, you would still be playing the video game. Right. Yeah. You're describing every Saturday night for me. (laughs) You've, you've proved your valuation by the fact that you did it. Hmm. And we can know that valuations are subjective. There's no such thing as an objective value of anything because the amount that you value something right now is not the same that I value something that same thing right now. There's an, how could you compare? Yeah, of course. Them? You're going to have a valuation. I'm going to have a valuation. 
But in order to compare two things, we would have to have some sort of standardized unit. So what are we going to mm. do? Like make units called like happiness hunger. units or hunger whatever? units. I mean, like even outside of hunger, this yeah. applies to everything. Happiness, joy. Right. I mean, so like you could yeah, say, I things. apply this many units of happiness to making <sighs> the sandwich right now. And I can say, well, you say 10. And I'm like, well, I apply 70 units of happiness to having a sandwich right now. And then how do we know that the units we're talking about are the you same? How can we, same, yeah. like, there's no way to untangle all of the things. You need language. Involved in order to know that your units are the same as my units and therefore value is subjective. Man, those first humans were fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then if we, so like, let's take a bunch of objects. Like you have a bunch of objects in your house or whatever, and you value any end, any object that you have Subjectively, yeah. you value it based on its ability to achieve ends for you in the future. Mm -hmm. Personally, though, right? Yeah, whatever ends you deem valuable, right? Um, so then we can start getting even more creative, and we can start uh, building the logic out further, and we can come up with this idea in economics called marginal utility. Okay, so. Let's take an example, okay? So I want you to follow this thought experiment here. I'll guide you through it. I'm with you. So let's say that you have 20 plastic containers, gallons of water. Okay. And we can even number them. Gallon number one all the way up to gallon number 20. That makes it easy. Okay. And let's say you got all these different uses for water. Okay. How would you maybe value those things? What are the what are the uses for water that you can think of in order of most valuable to you that you couldn't live without to least valuable? Drinking might be number one. Cooking, mm -hmm. probably number two. Even though you might not necessarily know to cook with water right away, but um, bathing, um. Cleaning, general cleaning, making sure my cave is clean, making sure the walls, the, all the art that I did on my cave wall is clean. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would just say you um, um, recreation. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we've got... How did I score? It's all okay. subjective. <laughs> okay. So we've got those valuations for you. You said drinking, cooking, bathing... What did you say next? Um, I think I said cleaning. Cleaning and, then and recreational. Then recreation. Okay. Yeah. So now let's say of those water jugs, I take away number three, four, and five. Oh, shit. Now, does that mean that because you took away three, four, and five, that you're going to have to give away your second, third, and fourth preference for use of water? No. What would you do? What would you go without if all of a sudden you found yourself with less water? Recreation. Right. Yeah. So you've got this rank of things in your head of mm -hmm. uses for water, the most important, and you remove some water and you're going to get rid of the thing that you value the least yep. as far as the uses. So that's called marginal utility. Um, Easy to understand. Yeah. So well, that allows us to do something where we, we can understand um, that, 
by adding another gallon of water. That f- so they say you have no water now. Right. And you had to buy water. And you had to buy that first gallon. You might pay whatever you pay a decent amount for it because Anything. you're thirsty and you need to drink. I got to live. Right? Yep. And then I try and sell you a second gallon. Mm-hmm. And you might pay pretty good money for that because you got to cook. Sure. Yeah. And then I, I try and sell due. you a third and a fourth and a fifth gallon. Less and, and as less we and add less. more and more yeah. and more of the thing, yeah. you're willing to pay less and less and less for it because based the things, on the that, things that I need, yeah. right. Based on the ends that you seek to achieve right. with that water, yeah. those are ranked lower and lower in your head. So the more and more and more of a unit that you buy, yeah. you've going to value it less and less and less. Right. I mean, I, I can, I can live without water gun fights. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, so but I'll pay a little bit less for the water gun fights. That's the law of marginal utility is that the more of a unit you buy for every extra unit, you're going to value it less and less. And that goes for everything that goes for money. That goes for bricks. That goes for water. That goes for food, anything. Yep. That's absolutely. We've just created an economic law based off of logic. Yep. So that's praxeology. Okay. And that obviously goes into more than water. <laughs> yeah. And, and wherever I lack in like explaining this, like read the sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't actually refute these things without refuting that humans act because it all falls out logically. And if you don't act, you're probably not reading this or listening to this podcast. So <laughs> right, cause that's an action. You ain't a human. See you later. AI get out of here. So you can actually uh, use that law of utility that you um, that we just uncovered to create an economic concept called the downward sloping demand curve, meaning that the more and more of a thing that you sell in quantity, like the less and less of a price you can get. It for demands, it. yeah. And that's like a graphical mathematical concept, mm-hmm. but I'm visualizing it's it right actually. Now pulling it out of logic. So it's not to say that like praxeology can't use math or doesn't use math. It's just, it's not using math to predict humans. It's using logic to build up economic principles. Right. And then the math can follow. Right. In a sense, because it knows, and and it's based geographically. It's based on need. It's based on the demographic. It's based on all these different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in any given instance, if you go and measure an economy and the Mm -hmm. specific downward sloping demand curves, like any given example you can find doesn't refute the law of marginal utility. It just Mm. says that in that instance, there's more going on. Sure. Just in the same way you go out and you find a triangle in nature and it doesn't conform to a Pythagorean theorem. It doesn't mean that Pythagorean theorem is wrong. It means that there that's not necessarily a perfect triangle we're still looking for that perfect triangle (laughs) (laughs) so yeah uh you can also build up uh wealth creation so transforming an object if you take an object out of the state of nature and you transform it then so it's ready to be consumed in production then you are then someone else can take that thing and use it to sell or to cook or to clean with. Like mm. you have, you have taken something and changed its value and that's where production comes from. 
right? Like you cut, you go out in the woods, you cut down a tree, you mill it, and then you take planks of wood to the market and you sell it. Like you didn't, Mm -hmm. you've now created value and you've started the process of production. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty easy to follow. Yeah. There's a, there's another cool truth that you can uncover in Austrian economics, which is that all voluntary exchange is by definition um, increasing wealth. So if you and I... No matter the value. No matter the value of the things, because the person who wants the thing from you... Values it. Yeah, so if you and I are going to trade, right? right? Like, I got a beer. Right. I want that bear. I'm hungry, so I want a sandwich from you. I can make a sandwich. Right? I make a good sandwich. Even if, like objectively you're at the market, you can buy a sandwich or a beer for this or that. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a sandwich and I have a beer and, and I give you a beer and you give me a half a sandwich immediately, right? The value is what you can know in that exact moment is that in that moment, I value the sandwich more than the beer. And in, in that moment, you value the beer more than the sandwich. Yeah. And so when we exchange, we have now both become, we agreed to the fact that these are both the things we want more than the thing we have right? to offer. Right. Yeah. So regardless of what prices on store shelves say, what our preferences have shown yep. is that we have done a mutual value exchange mm-hmm. and that we have both profited. Right. Even though, you know, tomato prices might have skyrocketed the week right. before. Right. So all voluntary exchange by definition <clears throat> creates wealth because what is wealth except for a growing of your satisfactions, a, an achieving of your ends, mm-hmm. practically logically. Okay. Makes sense. Um, let me see where we are. Yeah, I was going to say, we should check on uh, time. We are here. over. Of course we are. Yeah. Infamously. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's take a little break. Take a break. And then we're going to go over for more. I'm going to go eat a sandwich. I'm going to have a beer and maybe we'll trade. Depends how good a sandwich is. I think I want beer more than a sandwich. <laughs> All right, see y'all in a bit. All right, adios.
anytime we start talking, we really need to record. We just had a whole talk about sandwiches. Man, it was the greatest talk tune. And it was at the very last sentence of the talk. We were both like, we should have been recording. Yeah. Ugh, I know that's was what good. you guys really come good. here for, is uh, knowledge about making the best sandwiches. Yeah. I Drew's claim is that if you're going to put a sauce on one side of the bread and a sauce on the other side of bread, the mustard belongs with the cheese yep. and the mayo belongs with the meat. Yep. Whatever meat. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Or if you prefer a different sauce other than mayo, it still prov- it still belongs with the meat other like, than the cheese. Well, like if you're doing like a creamy sort of hey, sauce. Yeah. Any kind of creamy sauce. Yeah, it goes with the meat. <laughs> I'll stand by it. Yeah. I'll debate you. Please email me. <laughs> I will debate you about this topic. Host that duality check that net. Send us an email. Uh-huh. I'll because then watching. I brought up hot dogs and I was like, but what about I don't see a lot of people putting just mayo on their hot dogs, but I see a lot of people putting just mustard. And then I was like, is a hot dog a sandwich? Yeah. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know, but honestly. I I don't eat hot dogs all that often, and I do put mustard on my hot dogs. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I'm going to start putting mayo now that you said that and see if it tastes better. You should try it, but Rep- I don't think it's a sandwich. Still, don't report don't get back. me wrong. I'll report, report back. back. Report back, and please debate me. I love debating <laughs> this topic. My other brother John, and he'll he'll probably talk about this with me too. But he always used to make me make him sandwiches. Partially because he's my older brother and I was younger and he was like, dude, you make the best sandwiches. And it like gave him some kind of power over me. But I also, I was like, I watched him make a sandwich and I was like, dude, you are just doing it all wrong. You are, you are lost in this world, my young brethren. Uh, (laughs) He he valued the ends of learning to make a sandwich too low and Drew said him right. Absolutely. I'll continue to do so with anybody else. Email me. I'll, I'm telling you. Uh, that's great. <laughs> um, Where cool. were we? We're, <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about like wealth creation. Before that, we were talking about the law of marginal utility. Um, so Austrians have a interesting, and I actually haven't studied this on like other schools, but Austrians have an interesting like uh, theory of the formation of money. The formation of like the exchange of a thing that wasn't the actual thing? Yeah, like yeah, they have like a sort of theoretical framework for how a money comes into existence. Okay. Which I find super fascinating. Um, and it sort of sheds some light on our current society and what we call money now. Um, Let's hear it. Yeah, so... Yeah, so the Austrian school basically believes that money comes from throughout comes about through a natural process of exchange, right? So starting with barter, okay? So let's, let's go into a barter mindset. Okay. Okay, we've got person A, B, and C, or let's give them names so it's easier to follow. Drew, Dean, and John. Okay. <laughs> Perfect names to do. That's yeah. Tough. So we'll put you as uh, person A in my diagram here, which I'll post. Okay. Um, so we'll rename it to Mayo Mustard. So you are a person who has like specialized in like and tending chickens and producing eggs. Okay. Good. 
um, and you want something else, like you want butter. Sure. Right? And I've specialized in making butter. Okay? So a simple barter is like, hey, Dean, I got all these eggs. I I don't got any butter. And I'm like, yo, Drew, I got all this butter, and I don't have any eggs. And because of the law of marginal utility that we talked about earlier – all of this excess of a product, you value it less and less and less. Right. Right. So because you have all these eggs, a bunch of those eggs, I mean, there's a certain amount of eggs you're going to keep for yourself to eat. Right. But then past a certain point, like why do I need all these eggs? It's a waste. And same for me with butter. So we're going to approach each other and see that I'll see all those eggs you got. And I'll be like, yo, I would love some eggs. And you're going to see all this butter and be like, yo, I would love some butter. So we're going to exchange, barter. And that essentially proves out through the law of marginal utility that we're both profiting again because you're going to value that little bit of butter that you get from me higher than this excess, this hundredth egg that you have in your stock. Probably 300. I'm probably doing pretty good. (laughs) So, and vice versa for me. But barter has limitations, okay, because not everything takes the same amount of effort to create. So while you got all these chickens and you got hundreds of eggs, like as you just said, three hundreds of eggs. And maybe I have a little less butter because butter's like an involved process. They don't just, I don't have a bird to poop it out for me. (laughs) I have to like go through a process to make it. I might have a little less butter. Yeah. Maybe we should be exchanging how to make eggs and butter. (laughs) (laughs) So then John comes along and John produces shoes. Okay. Mm. A fool. <laughs> so shoes is a more involved process. He has to actually like get all these raw materials and mm-hmm. process them and put like, them all together. Yeah. So yeah. it's like a, a lot more labor intensive, labor intensive. Yeah. Like, the amount of like work and effort and time he has to put in to create shoes. Like for him, like he's just going to have less shoes, but that doesn't mean that you and I value them less. Right. I need, I mean, how else am I going to go out and check on my chickens? Right. So you've got eggs and John's got shoes, but what if you approach John with your eggs and you're like, yo, John, let me get some shoes. I got eggs. And John's Mm. like, hey, I've already got eggs. I don't need eggs. man. Now what do you do? Who the hell is this other seller? Right. So, and you talk to him and you're like, all right, well, if you don't need eggs, what do you need? Right. And he's like, well, I could really use some butter. So then you come back to me. You're like, hey, Dean, let me go ahead and trade you some eggs for some butter. So we're like, all right, cool. Boom. We trade. And now you take that butter and you go back to John and be like, yo, John, here's that butter you wanted. Let me get some shoes. Boom. Okay. Now, what is that butter that you just bought to you? You didn't buy it because you wanted butter. You bought butter with your eggs because you wanted shoes that's income so the butter is a is what's called a medium of exchange yep okay like you didn't buy it for the consumption you bought buy it for the purpose of that yeah. for the purpose of trading for something else you wanted so right. it's just a means to an end for you right in that right. scenario so that's called a medium of exchange man what a great trade i'm making here <laughs> what a great trade I got chickens pooping eggs for me. I got people making <laughs> butter for me. I got shoes coming in for the butter that I'm that chickens are pooping for me. Right. I mean, wow. And back to iPencils, like it would have been so much harder for you to like have that know-how of all of those things, right? But it's a lot easier for you to like focus on your chickens. 
Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And same for the the two of us, me and me and John. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so barters can become more and more difficult to make. Right. Well, when you, as soon as you approach someone and they don't want what you have, they want something else. Then you have to go to someone else, find that thing, exchange, and then go back and exchange. Or find a new person, right? Right. So now let's take it a step further where mm. we're going to introduce uh, Beth. That's our sister. <laughs> so Beth is now, um, she makes plows. Okay. Now that's even way more involved than shoes even. Like crazy involved. Like that thing, to, like it might take her like months and months and months and months and months to create a plow. But still, based on the law of marginal utility, maybe she wants to keep one plow for her own crops that she grows for herself. But like, she doesn't really need ten plows. But that making plows is what she knows how to do. I mean, so you she, got ten kids, you got ten plows, you got ten ten rows being plowed <laughs> at the same time. I mean, shoot. Right, but her profession isn't farming. She just farms for sure. her own food. Her right. profession is making plows. Right. So the law of marginal utility means every extra plow she makes is valued less and less and less to her directly. Right. So she wants to go on the market and she wants to sell these plows. You would really like a plow to tend your fields for chickens because plows are used for that. In well, this hey, logic. they got to eat. They got to eat something. Oh, yeah. Maybe they eat corn. Maybe you're growing your they own feed grains, for them. Right. some kind of grains. Yeah. Okay. So now your goal is to, to buy a plow. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to feed them chickens that do all the work for me. But Beth comes to you and is like, not only do I not want eggs, I want butter. But the amount of butter I want for a plow is a freaking ton. I want okay. lots of butter. Yeah. So in order for you to uh, procure a plow, you now have to go to multiple people and to be like, yo, can I now. give you eggs for butter? Yo, can I give you eggs for butter? Mm. Yo, can I give you eggs for butter? Mm. And you're doing all these transactions to accumulate all this butter just so you can go back to Beth Get that and be plow. like, I want to plow. Yeah. Right? So now you see how like super complicated this barter system gets. And in order to simplify it, all of these people are starting to recognize that butter is a thing that everyone wants for some reason. And so everyone's starting to buy up to all their trade stock. butter as an intermediary, mm -hmm. as a medium of exchange to get other goods. Uh, and as more and as more and more people realize that, hey, Drew or Beth accepts butter for plows, John accepts butter for shoes, Dean accepts butter for eggs, or Drew accepts butter for eggs. Like more and more people are realizing, well, everyone is willing to use butter as a medium of exchange. So they might take any chance they can get to just procure some butter so that they can have it for convenience to then give to someone else for something they really want. And now Hence all of a sudden butter money. is being elevated as a common media of an exchange that all of us are using. Right. Butter is a good one. Yeah. And essentially through that process and through getting it more and more complicated with more and more people, uh, you discover a, 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 a thing a rises as yeah. a medium of exchange. As the commonality between all of the different things. Right. And when enough people in a society all use the same thing as a medium of exchange, that's when now we have a money. Hmm. Do you think it was butter originally? 
Well, actually, it's really interesting because like so many things have been used in medium ex- mediums of exchange as I know monies. Grains, I know. So there, I got a little snippet here from uh, Let's do that. from Man Economy State again. So uh, people. So what we're talking about medium exchange. Mm-hmm. The people in each community tended to choose the most marketable marketable commodity available: right. tobacco in uh, colonial Virginia, sugar in the West Indies, salt mm. in Abyssinia, right. cattle in ancient Greece, nails in Scotland, copper mm. in ancient Egypt, and many others, inclu- yeah. including beads, tea, cowrie shells, fish hooks. Through the centuries, gold and silver specie. Has been gradually. has gradually evolved as the commodities most widely used across the world as a medium of exchange. Yeah, because you evolve the sense of like needing the specific commodity itself, right, mm-hmm. to be the thing that you need in order to exchange for the stuff you really want. Because you're growing the thing, you're receiving the thing, but you don't need that those things to be the thing that you're exchanging right. constantly. You don't necessarily need the gold for the gold's sake. You don't need the cowrie shells for the cowrie shells' sake. You don't need the fish hooks for the fish hooks' sake. Unless you're ancient Egypt and they put everything in gold. or Right. So among other factors, the high marketability has been... um, So for gold and silver, among other factors in their high marketability have been their great demand as ornaments, Mm -hmm. their scarcity in relation to other commodities... Um, their ready divisibility and the great durability in, in the last few hundred years, their marketability qualities have led to their general adoption as media throughout the world. Right. Which makes sense because you want something that's easily divisible. You want something that's not necessarily the thing that you need, but it's something that you can, you can, you can um, attribute to the thing you need, right? As far as like the quantity or the quality. Right. Of so it. back to Beth selling yeah. her plows, right? So if she gets gold, so if she gets butter, the problem with getting all that butter is by the time she goes through and and uses it all to buy the stuff she wants, it might go rancid. Exactly. It might. Uh, exactly. Someone might. Yeah, like, you don't want an wanna, animal might come in and eat some of it. Right. You don't want. There's all sorts of things. It's like butter is actually not a good medium of exchange. It's yeah. not a good money because Any there's all sorts of, of things that can product. cause it to degrade. Right. Not only that, but people can quote unquote counterfeit it because mm-hmm. someone may be like, "Yo, that everyone in this community they'll accept butter for everything," and so they go off. They make a freaking buttload of butter and then they come into your community and they buy up everything with all this butter interject it yeah right and so that can lead to weird that that's actually called inflation yeah um and anyway so what you want is your your medium of exchange to be scarce and not reproducible and gold and silver are very hard to mine there's there's so much more of it in the earth than we've ever mined out but I think what was the figure I heard like in all of earth, like the amount of gold can fit into like a couple swimming pools. Like right. Olympic no, size it's, it's a very it's small amount much. in comparison to the amount of exchange that it's been a part of. Right. right. And so it's super durable because gold is one of the most stable and malleable, elements. Like we were talking about it's earlier. Malleable. You can make it into coins. It's also like you can confirm that it is in fact gold relatively easy. Yeah. Especially nowadays, obviously. Mm-hmm. But even back in, you know, Egyptian time, ancient Egyptian times, like, they used it 
a lot of times to just coat a lot of things and they saw the value and the, the yeah, ability to project their yeah. wealth as a society by mm-hmm. coating all of their things in it. So they valued it and they wanted to gather it, right. you know? And that's part of the theory is that like a commodity typically has some sort of like root usefulness that leads to it becoming a medium exchange. And for gold, that is the fact that it it's divisible, is, it malleable. Is like used as a decoration. Yeah. It's used as jewelry. It's used yeah. in statues and used in all these. You can cover uses. You can, you and can today cover it's used in so electronics and all yep. this other stuff, right? Right. So there's yeah, a bunch of things that make one thing outcompete another thing as the the best medium of exchange recognized throughout the world and right. over time over that time. has ro- risen to become gold and silver. Which makes sense, yeah. Yeah, actually. Unless something else comes into the play. Right. So the origin of money is super interesting. But we're far beyond gold and silver now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're very far beyond that. So, yeah. And there's there has been historically ways that people have cheated the system with gold and silver, right? So... um there, back in the day, there used to be andrite uh, or whatever it's called. Well, there used to be like shaving. Like if you, if, oh, like yeah. if people stamp them into coins and you can just shave the tiniest minute amounts you, you're off of money. like, if you're a person who money passes through right. and every time money passes you through, shave you shave it. it. That's tax. You shave it. You shave it. That, and then you take all those shavings and mint new gold coins out of it. Like you've essentially stolen a value of that money and you're watering down the money supply. Um, that's actually where the ridges on coins come from mm. is to, de- is as a mechanism to, of detecting shaving. Mm, that's a fun fact. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's fun fact. Um, not that anything is coated in gold now, but I mean, well, I mean, there are I mean, obviously it's, it's, still gold coins, but right. Gold is still super. It's not the, it's not the commodity. main medium of exchange anymore. So, right. There's less worry about. Shavings. It was by, you know, that would get into the whole like banking conversation, which will be its own episode. But essentially banking comes along because gold for large quantities becomes heavy, cumbersome and risky to travel with. Uh, These people create these systems called banks where you can park your gold there and they'll give you a receipt for For how much you have. And then you can safely travel with that receipt. And when you get to where you're going, you can pay someone that receipt where they can then go exchange it and deliver and, and receive get, And the then gold. you get your gold, yeah. Right. Um, and so that's the beginning of paper money. Which is crazy because they still just have to receipt. deliver that gold. Right. The, the origi- origin risky. of paper money was as just a receipt for gold deposits. But that's also just for the individual. For the individual, right. right. But the bank still had to deliver that gold. Right. But that's that was the service they offered was right. to keep it secure and to transport it secure. Right, and if you think about the old West so that times, you didn't right? have to take that. You didn't right. have to take that, that risk burden yourself. on. Yeah, because like if you think about old West, when you're talking about bank robbers, the Wells and Fargo stagecoach yeah. that's traveling yeah. across. But like, they had like they had the shotgun rider, they mm-hmm. had the shotgun, and then you had like other riders in the back with guns, like protecting the stagecoach. But the person who actually the gold belonged to was nowhere near. Right. So they were safe because of this whole system of 
receipts. Right. Which at the time were what? Green They're using backs. that eye pencil market phenomenon of little know-hows where the bank's little know-how is the security and uh, the storage right. and transportation right. of the valuable resource itself. Right. And the person just, you know, obviously valued that. Right. But then later and, on- but the banks took a, took a cut. Yeah. Still at the time, right? I don't want to go too deep into banking. Okay, but I just I, find it I, so interesting. I, I, I really was super interested in the Wild West factor of it. But yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. all fascinating. Like that whole time period of right. like when we got off of the gold standard and we got off of that whole thing was like right. a crazy time period. And it's just in, like in American history, those gold receipts became so common that. Eventually, people just started trading the receipts back and forth mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than ever going and getting the gold out right. because it was so convenient. Right. And because so the gold would stay in the bank while the receipts would pass around. And yeah. that's the actual origins of paper money. When isn't that? But every little piece of receipt represented physical gold in the bank at right. that time. But wasn't there an issue between banks too? Like that was why there was this whole centralized banking system. That, that comes about. later on down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Like eventually they saw there was a problem. The fact that people are just trading receipts and the, the gold was never where it needed to be when they called for it. Right. Uh, yeah. So what actually happened is that at, at some point the banks started cheating the system. They exactly. realized that, of, of that gold they had up. in their vault, only a certain percentage of it would ever get demanded out at any given right. time. Right. And so they could just hang they're like, well, it. why don't we make use of this gold that is just collecting dust in our vault? And they go and they start loaning it out to people. Mm. That was where that a lot of that began. Like That's where the like, loans and right. So like you, you put your money in there and then the bank's going to turn around and loan it to people, charge interest for that loan, make a profit on the interest. And then when the gold comes back, the gold will come back in general before you come and demand that gold. And because not all of the gold is there in their vault anymore, that's when they start becoming prone to runs on the bank. Right. They're, that's the beginning of what's called fractional reserve banking. All right. Okay, we can go back, but... Yeah. But that brings up the next point I wanted to talk about is just like, uh, well, once you once a money comes into effect and once everyone is using a money, then you can get the formation of prices. Okay. okay. So because everyone's using the same money, whether it be gold or cowrie shells or fish hooks, mm -hmm. uh, everyone in your area is using that same thing as their money. And so now you can start to understand that like a certain number of fish hooks is worth a loaf of bread, a certain number of fish hooks is worth a t-shirt, a certain number of fish hooks is worth a plow, right? And that's the formation of prices. Okay. And prices allow people to, to take their economic pursuits to a new level. Right. With the information of prices, you can then start to write down the prices and create businesses where you process a certain number of things with the expectation later on of being able to, to gather this or that price for the thing. Mm. That's when you realize like, hey, Beth's plows sell for 10,000 fish, fish hooks, right? But 
I think butters. I can create a, a plow creating process uh, yeah. and with the people I know and the prices I can get for the things and the, the process I created, I think I could sell plows for 8,000 fish hooks. Mm. So competition. So you can now create a business around that and you can do calculations based on your inputs and your outputs to figure out if you've made a profit. And that's where like the economy starts taking on a whole new level. Once you have a money, once you establish pricing, now you can start doing calculations. You can do profit and loss statements and you can start doing math to figure out more complicated economic transactions. And then the economy starts to complexify just because prices exist. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I find all of that super interesting. Um, but yeah, and then interest rates, right? So what, if you had to define like what is an interest rate, like in as simple as you could. Um, as far as loans go, right? Like it's, well, just interest like, rate. Yeah, what guess, is yeah. an interest rate? Um, I would just say it's, um, the appreciation of the value for what you get. All right. So I would, uh, what, yeah, the Austrians would say is like, uh, what an interest rate is, is it's the price of money. And specifically what it really is, is it's actually a measurement of time and how much someone wants money now versus how much they want money later. Mm. Okay. So let's say your plow business is super successful and you've got all this money stacked up and you don't need it all right now. Um, but someone else has like something that they could do money with and they're like, yo, you got all this money. Would you give me some? And you're like, sure. I don't need it now, but I need it later. And because it could just sit here or I could loan it out and then charge interest to right. get it back later. So I have what's called a low time preference for my money. Right. Over time. Yeah. It's a, basically the appreciation of the money over time. Right. And the person who's asking for the loan has a high time preference for money because they need the money now in order to do something with it. Right. Right. To make the, to do the deal that they need now, they have to do it now. So they are willing to. Yeah. Right. So what, so what interest is, is it's a measurement of how much people want their money now versus they want that in the future. And the balance of that, if more and more people in society who give loans to people want their money now, the interest rates will go up. Mm-hmm. Because you'll have to, they'll have to make a lot more money to be willing to loan it out. Right. But if their time preference goes down, then the interest rates will go down. And it, it's also influenced on the, the demand side, too. If more and more people want loans and they're willing to compete for those loans, they can drive the interest rate up. So in simply, it's the, the lenders, is whether the lenders are have the capability of, of loaning the money for longer or shorter. Right. And, and in theory, what it represents collectively as a society is it, it, it represents how much 
so when you have the understanding that money represents trades of valuable things between people, like every amount of money represents like a transaction, like a thing you could buy. Right. Um, so all of the economy has a certain amount of things. There's a certain amount of eggs, there's a certain amount of shirts, there's a certain amount of plows and fish hooks and whatever. Right. There's a certain amount of stuff in the society and all the money in the society should be able to buy those things at a certain ratio of money to those things existing. That's where the prices come from. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if people aren't actually using that money right now, then that means they're not going to go out and buy those things right now. Right. So it's, it's society demonstrating a preference that they don't need to consume things now. They'd rather consume them later. So that essentially frees up, a bunch of capital, a bunch yeah. of actual physical resources in the economy for other people to use to get things now. Yeah. And then later on, they can pay that money back. Right. And also the people who are getting the money back can use that money later for whatever investments or whatever right. they need to do at that time. Yeah. So uh, I like to do this thing to, to explain like what inflation is um, where like You've ever played Monopoly, right? Have you ever played it yeah. like the proper way, quote unquote, where you like bid oh, for gosh. properties? No, probably not because I just am not. Yeah, no one has the patience to play nobody, the real Monopoly. Yeah. It actually goes a lot faster if you I'd play it the way it's supposed to. to be. No, I'd be willing to, but I think you need everybody to be down. Yeah. I think because what, all it takes is one person to just throw the game. Right. So most people, when they play it, they like, they play by the quote unquote house rule where like, you land on a, like you land on boardwalk, you can't afford it, <coughs> so you you skip on buying it. Right. But in in the real rules, when you can't buy it, it goes up for auction to everyone else in the game. Ooh. Yeah. So at that moment that you land on it, you either have to buy it or it goes for auction. Mm. And, and they can just bid on it. People start the bid. Yeah. And then the bids go around. Up until whoever is the highest bidder, no one's willing to bid anymore, and then that person gets boardwalk. Mm. That's the real way Monopoly is supposed to be played. Right. Okay, so this bidding process, right? So we got four people sitting around with a certain amount of Monopoly money, right? Someone just landed on boardwalk. We might. What are we at right now? We're ready for a break or even getting close to the end. (laughs) Okay. Let me just – let me Go ahead. Finish it. Kids waking up? Well, yeah, one of them is. Oh, shoot. All right, let's do one more break. Okay, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll start this Monopoly talk over again. Yeah, because there's one more concept I want to get through and then we can end the show off after that. Let's take a quick break. Um, Enjoy some music. See you in a bit.
And we're back. Hello. Boys took a while. Yeah, a little bit of time on that one. My, uh, the older, the toddler, is in a, his own toddler bed now. So he, uh, he's experiencing some sleep difficulties with that. Yeah. It's like... Drew just showed me how when he's scared, he pulls all of his blankets and stuffed animals right around him in a circle. Yeah, he puts himself <laughs> in the corner of his bed and like protects himself with all of his stuffies. He's totally fine. Like, look, yeah, he just laid down. And I was like, I was like, look, you got all your animals with you. He goes, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like immediately calmed down. Oh, it's funny. Gosh, freaking cute. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so we left we off talking, talking about Monopoly, Monopoly right? Monopoly. So that was our analogy, right? Yeah. Do you remember? <clears throat> I gave you the analogy that someone lands on Boardwalk, right? They can't afford it, mm-hmm. so it goes up for auction. Yeah, which I've never played that way, but I like I like the idea of that. Well, it means that all the properties get bought up the first time someone lands on them. Right, so there's so no you don't going around, like, and around and around and right. around and like around. Monopolies them. happen quicker, therefore mm. people start getting taxed for them quicker, and therefore right. people get out quicker, and the game goes quicker. Yeah, well, I don't know why more people don't play that way. Yeah, it's actually faster, and it's mm. pretty fun. And it makes, it might be more frustrating in a sense, but. Sure, but it gives you auction practice. Yeah, okay. So okay. what was the analogy? Okay, like, so let's connect here's the that. reason I say that. Okay, so. um Here's like put yourself in that situation, okay? Yeah. Um, you have a certain amount of money in your hand, okay? And so does everyone else. This is the most desired property on the market. So everyone starts bidding, okay? And whatever, let's say it ends up bidding all the way up to five hundred monopoly dollars, mm-hmm. okay? Just because someone can afford that, and that's how much it takes to outbid everyone. Yeah. Okay. Now let's play the same scenario. It goes on, it goes up for auction. But then all of a sudden, someone walks by and just drops an extra $1,000 in everyone's hand. Mm hmm. Is that, and then the auction starts. Mm hmm. What is the price of Boardwalk going to be? You can't tell me exactly, but is it going to be higher or lower than $500 Monopoly dollars? Likely higher. It's going to be higher because yeah. everyone has more money to bid with. It's the most desirable thing. Everyone's bidding for it. Mm-hmm. There's more money available to bid with. Right. So the price goes up. Yep. Now, if it drops on everyone at the same time, then it's sort of a wash because everyone got money at the same so, rate. Yeah, it's basically going to end up being the same. Right. And so in a similar way, the, this is a metaphor for inflation. Right. Okay. And this is where the Austrian stool, school starts to get different. Than starts to di- the differentiate itself. Right. Because everything we've yep. been talking about before is really interesting. And those yeah. are the building blocks for the economy. But this yeah. is where really like the policy recommendations start changing. Right. Okay. Because the Austrian definition of inflation is an increase in the money supply. Is it an unnatural? Like- I guess it would have to be an unnatural increase in the money supply, right? No, just in general. So, like, if money is gold 
and all of a sudden some miner strikes on a okay. big vein of gold. Right. So it could be natural. It could yeah. be natural inflation gotcha. from someone finding a bunch of gold, or gotcha. it could be a government yep. and yeah, paper yeah. money just printing a bunch of money and so dropping it's just it in the, the it's just the inf- it's just the growing of the money supply. Got it. Right. That is the Austrian definition of inflation. In Keynesianism, the I don't know their exact definition, but it, essentially the definition of inflation is when the prices of goods go up. Mm-hmm. It's like an event that happens that caused prices to rise. Right. It doesn't actually mention the quantity of money. I was going to say, yeah, it doesn't actually talk about that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So because in Keynesianism, their ideal managed economy is like printing a certain amount of money to adjust for the natural growth and productivity that happens in human society. So to them, there's an ideal amount Curve. of inflation yeah. but to an austrian any money injected in the system purely is, is yeah. that's defined as inflation right okay okay so we come along to the monopoly scenario drop a thousand dollars in everyone's hands and that's an even inflation across the board that money got injected everywhere at the same time so it's relatively fair even though it may disrupt what prices things are mm. right Right, right, right. But in actual fact, in our everyday society with governments and central banks and monetary policy, inflation doesn't happen that way. Inflation happens where money gets created through the Federal Reserve banking system and new money enters the economy. But that money doesn't go to everyone at the same time. I was going to say most recently, especially in U.S., the COVID relief the COVID package. relief package, which yeah. the amount that the Americans got versus, or the American people got versus the amount that these big politically connected companies got is totally different. Right. All right, so let's play the Monopoly scenario again. The banker comes by right when Boardwalk goes for auction and he only drops $1,000 in the hands of one person. Mm-hmm. Still inflation. Sure. But what's the outcome going to be? Who's going to win that auction? Yeah, likely that person who can now outbid everybody. Right. And that is what happens in our economy. When money enters through a certain point, whoever gets that money first. The certain package. The rest of the economy isn't really aware that that new money exists. Or reacting to it, yeah. Whereas the person who gets that fresh new money all of a sudden they have this supply to go grab resources out of the economy, but the rest of the economy doesn't know that money exists yet. And so they get things at the original price, whereas every, every single time they buy and sell, it has a pressure on prices. It causes prices to change. And so eventually that money will make its way throughout the economy and prices will rise everywhere. And eventually wages will rise and eventually it'll even out. So in the long run, it will find an equilibrium, but the process of injecting money at one point causes wherever that money gets injected to have an unfair advantage price-wise compared to everyone else. And the ripples aren't felt until later. Right. And so someone starts getting all these resources for free. It's like playing Monopoly and that auction goes on sale and someone only drops the money on one person's table. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's an understanding of inflation. Now, that leads to what's called the business cycle theory, and this is like the gem of Austrian economics. This is like the most important thing to pull away from it. 
Um, so business cycles, you know, do you know what a business cycle is? Break it down for me. Okay. So like a business cycle is the idea in the economy that we have these times where all of a sudden the economy is like screaming ever like, at, like people are making money left and right. Like people, like things are selling, like things are going up. People are spending their money and businesses are reaping the right. benefits of it. And then the inverse of that is like a depression or a recession. Okay. Yeah. And where things all of a sudden take a crash, the famous one in 29 with, with the yeah. great depression. And then you got like the other big ones that have happened in our lifetime and the 99.com bubble mm-hmm. and burst. Then you got the 2008 and then you got the Housing COVID. Crisis, yeah. Right. So Keynesianism tries to explain crashes of the economy in a certain way where for them it is a misallocation of the balance of the economy where the government can come in and manage by injecting money here and there to try and cause a recovery to happen. Right. So they're just something unnatural happened to cause a crash in Keynesianism. Right. And they're trying to inject money to fix it, scramble and fix it in a sense. Or that kid. (laughs) You keep looking. Yeah, he woke up, yeah. Oh, is he crying? Oh. We could pause. Alrighty. We're back. We paused. We took a pause. So, yeah, I was saying that the Keynesian view of an economic crash is that there's something out of balance causing a crash, right? Right. It's unnatural in a sense, right? That's what their yeah, thought is. Or, or, yeah, someone's being greedy. People aren't right. acting properly. The, but it's a... The, the, there are... In the Keynesianism, the, the economy needs managing or else it will crash, basically, inevitably. Right, but don't the Austrians also... Like, they know of inevitably markets crash, Okay, so let's go with the Austrian approach because it's different. Yeah. Okay, so the Austrian approach is that the unnatural thing that's happening is before the crash. Right. So the unnatural thing that's happening from the Austrian point of view is that money is being injected into mm-hmm. the economy, that mm-hmm. a central bank is tweaking interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, that is... When you inject a bunch of money into the economy, you're going to get a bunch of superfluous purchases. You're going to get um, people making investment decisions that they wouldn't otherwise make because that money wasn't there before. Right. Okay. Yeah. Remember the first people who get that money, the people you drop that money on in the Uh monopoly game, they're going to come ahead. Right. So if you do the same thing in the real economy, you drop a bunch of money in or you turn down unnaturally through the process of central banking, you turn, tweak down the interest rate. Remember when we talked about what is an interest rate? An interest rate is the economy's preference for whether it wants to save money and free up resources for future investment or whether it needs that money now and those resources now. Right? So low interest rates are a signal to the economy that it's a good time for investors to start long-term projects mm-hmm. because people are choosing to save, right. right? 
So with low interest rates, you can make profits on long-term projects that require financing. Right. When the interest rates are high, a lot of those long-term projects that require financing aren't as viable. And it's supposed to be that way, according to Austrians, because the economy is telling you, hey, we need resources now. Mm -hmm. We prefer our money now. We need these things. So then the government comes in, they turn down the interest rate. And what does that do? It sends the signal out to the economy. Hey, investors, now's a good time to invest in projects. But that's not what the economy was saying naturally. Mm-hmm. And so all of these projects start happening. Dang. And the resources aren't there to back it up. Right. So it's actually the boom before the crash. That's the unnatural thing. It's an injection of money in the economy. It's causing this bubble, superficial bubble to build. Right. But that superficial bubble is people investing in projects that the resources aren't there for. Right. And inevitably, it's like a it's like a game of musical chairs. At some point, the resources Someone's aren't going to be, be there for certain projects, it. and projects are going to start failing. And when projects start failing, investments start going bad. And when investments start going bad, people start panicking. And when people start panicking, so just runs on the bank. And so in the Austrian point of view, the the recession that happens is actually the economy saying, hold up, guys. We've gone too far with this. What we need to do Save. is reallocate these resources. We need to put a pause on things. We need to allow some of these bad investments to fail yep. so that those businesses that were investing poorly can be liquidated. Their right. assets can be moved around to people who will manage them better. Right. And the economy can start rebuilding. Whether that be the businesses going under or yeah. new businesses taking over that capital in a sense and then right. like running with it. And so the analogy that you'll hear a lot of Austrians use is it's like a hangover. So like, mm-hmm. you know, drinking a bunch of alcohol for the night, maybe it feels good when you're doing it. You're getting this big high, you're getting this big buzz, you know, things are happening. You're having a good time. But what's coming down the line is that inevitable hangover, that inevitable crap feeling the next day. And that's what a recession is. The recession is the hangover. The cause of the hangover is not the fact that you just happen to wake up and feel bad. The cause of the hangover is the fact that you drank all night last night. Yeah. And yeah, so that's you, the uh, analogy. Interesting. Okay. And so that that's where Austrian and Keynesianism split. really, really split. Yeah. And that has huge implications on the country, has huge in- implications on how the world should be managed. Yeah. Should we have a bunch of central planners and central banks and people sitting there with their economic math equations trying to calculate what's the right amount of money to inject in the economy at the right time? Yeah, that's an important point too is it's not just like a singular point of the government that's making all these decisions. It's all these different like like, um, groups and Mm-hmm. Like all these different policymakers and all these different things that are happening all at the same time that right. are like trying to like, oh, we need to do this now because it'll, it'll, you know, help this and that, you know, like there's right. all these, like, it's not really just a single mastermind. It's more of like an entity with a bunch of masterminds. Yeah. It's a bunch of, like, it's a bunch of like interests that are yeah. motivated yeah. to manage things in a to, certain way. To pull the market in a certain way to. Right. And that, you know, whether it be 
lobbyists trying to like manipulate the market to like benefit their their sector of business or whatever businesses trying to get yeah. take advantage of the the new cheap money policies and try and get in on really cheap loans so they can invest in these startup ideas that have yeah. no grounds in profitability they're making these wild bets but they can do it because the interest rates are so cheap and they're mm-hmm. building all these companies spending all these resources on things that are ultimately doomed to fail yeah and also because they just know, like the dot-com bubble yeah because they all and they, they and inevitably they know that like it doesn't really matter it's all printed money <laughs> right you know? because it's on this model right so in the dot-com bubble, you get all of these hype around the brand new internet. You get all these investment firms pumping all this cheap money into the, yeah. oh, you got a startup idea? Here's money. Oh, you got a startup idea? Here's money. And all of these projects aren't necessarily sound, but they are easier to invest in when the interest rates are artificially low and when money is being pumped into the economy through inflation. And yeah. that will ultimately crash. And yeah. so that recession is supposed to happen. Mm. Or in um, the 2008 all yeah. of these people getting advice that real estate only ever goes up. Real estate only ever goes up. Real estate only ever goes up. And so they buy these investment properties and everyone's trying to flip houses and the, the market gets chunked up artificially. Everyone thinks they can't lose money, but ultimately it's going to pop. Yeah, it's sad. A lot of people who are just buying their first time homes are the ones that are like, like they try to get a really good rate at some, you know, but it's artificial. It's right. not realistic to where the market is going to inevitably go to. Yeah. I mean, in the long scheme of things, like land is limited and population grows. So there should over time be an upward pressure on real estate prices. But like when everyone's trying to flip houses and, mm-hmm. you know, like that, it's, right. it's, 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 it's unnatural the, right. the way the market was saturated at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the Austrians will tell you that. We can't tell you when you start printing a bunch of money, when you start artificially lowering the interest rates, we can't tell you where that bubble will necessarily form. But it's going to. But it's going to form somewhere. Yeah. And when it forms, it's going to cause all this misallocation. Stuff will start failing and that will ultimately learn or lead to a recession or a collapse. Yeah. The pop. Yeah. So Mm. there's a lot of other like implications and I'm not going to back these ones up but I'm just going to state a couple so we can wrap up the show for today. But okay. uh, some other things that Austrian uh, theory uh, brings about is the idea that uh, by definition or, you know, through Austrian praxeology and the chain of logic, they will show that minimum wage laws necessarily, when you raise a minimum wage, the inevitable outcome, all things being equal is that, you're going to increase unemployment for people who are young and people who are less trained. So the less skilled workers, the ones who are at that rate, they're going to, you're going to have a higher rate of unemployment for them. Uh, they can show that uh, prohibitions necessarily increase violent black markets, mm-hmm. alcohol prohibition, right. drug po- prohibition, even child labor in some countries. Like when you start ban- flat out banning child labor, like for some families, like they're not sending their child to a factory because they're greedy. They're sending a child to work somewhere it. because they need all of the work they can get to put food on the table. And when you take away that option, you start getting really dark things like 
child prostitution markets and stuff. It's it's terrible, but like in countries, the black markets of those child labors, like right. you're still gonna labor out your child. It's just not gonna be legal, right? And that's that's the the consequence of obviously we've kind of pushed back that we've yeah we've, well, kind of we've gone past in, that in, in America. This, we've grown to yeah. a a level of wealth that that's not really necessary for most people anymore. But it's still but, happening. Yeah. Right. Um, subsidies are always going to distort. Yeah. Um, so anytime you, the money or the government comes in and pumps a bunch of money into one thing or another, Certain it's going to cause unnatural distortions. Yep. All of these things back to the eye pencil, they are messing with that invisible hand that is guiding the market that, natural ebb and flow of human relations working back and forth that right. lead to an equilibrium. So when you come in and you make some big adjustment, there's going to be a consequence. And especially with governments too, like a lot of this money is taxed. Like it's tax dollars that you, the taxpayer who are also a worker, who are also a provide like a, a spender of the, in the economy are now paying are, are putting money towards the company who are, you are inevitably going to be buying from. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just such a distorted right way of, you know? And, you know, for people who do study economics and, you know, like they haven't necessarily spent a lot of time on the Austrian stuff, you'll hear arguments that, oh, Austrianism isn't scientific, but that's going back to that a priori versus empirical. Yeah. Um, and I think... Honestly, it's arguing the, against the, the fact that we are problem, acting. Right. <laughs> the root of the problem why the Austrian school isn't taken more seriously is because the people in power, the people in control, what they want is someone to come along and give them options for how they can manage mm. people like statistics, right? They don't want the Austrians to come in and say, anything you do is going to have a consequence. Anything you do is going to upset the natural balance of the economy. They don't want that. They want an out. Advice because you can't really like the logical conclusion of Austrianism is that the free market is the way towards the most prosperity. Well, and, and also in a sense, the free market is the way to free the people in a sense, because you, mm-hmm. instead of looking at people as a commodity or a statistic, you're looking at people as the engine of the economy right. and not just a statistic of it. In Keynesianism, they see uh, deflation as an issue that they need to to that they need to correct for. So for them, printing a certain amount of money to prevent deflation have the just right amount of inflation to keep prices the same is the most important thing. But Whereas who's, who's going to stop them from continuing that? In Austrianism, the theory is no deflation is a, a good thing, and what it, it's a marker. Right. Deflation means that if you have the same static set of of currency or gold, silver, if it's gold or silver based, you can't just inflate it because gold and silver take effort to gather, right? Yeah, they're they're limited. Right. So if you have a, a solid non-fiat currency, then by definition, as the economy grows, as the economy becomes more productive, prices will go down over time mm-hmm. rather than going up over time. And that's, that's actually right. a good thing. Yeah. And the reason that's a good thing is because you, as the average everyday worker, you can work your career, you can take money, you can save it in the bank, you can save it under your mattress. Yep. 
And guess Which what? Over time, the value it. of that money is going to go up because of the deflation. And so just saving money and working hard actually, is actually a retirement plan. Right. Instead well, of having to put it into an artificial thing to right. under the, a Keynesian economy, invest it. under constantly uh, constant inflation pressure, yeah. if you just save your money, if you work your whole life and all you do is save your money, you don't invest it, you're a sucker because every single year you're use, losing value. Of your money. And so it forces people into the stock market where they're not educated, where they don't have the education on how to make money. And so what do they do? They sign their money over to experts who, quote unquote, have their best interest in mind. And they put that money in stocks and mutual funds. And all of a sudden, everyone is putting their money into Wall Street where there's a bunch of politically connected people. Yeah. And so the whole thing is just a scheme by the powerful and connected to essentially farm value and wealth out of the population. Yeah. Out of the population to continue their power and greed. (laughs) Right. And so they try and do it at a rate where, where, you know, it's not going to, you know, what's the saying? You don't want to, the straw that broke the camel's back. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to crush their, they don't want to kill the gold, the goose that lays the golden eggs. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, like. yeah. So they're trying to manage it at such a rate that they can continually extract value without killing the goose that lays those golden eggs. And mm. anyway, I'm going to leave tons and tons of links yes. in the description of books from advanced to simple. And if you're interested in reading more, um, if you've studied economics, at least, you know, Give Austrian thinking a, a shot. Read a couple yeah. of the books. See Do a little what those bit of research. See how you feel. How their arguments hold up to you. If you're new to it, I'll recommend some of the easier reads. Yep. And resources and podcasts and videos. So um, it's an important topic. It controls the way our lives are run. And yeah. uh, when everything is working stuff. ideally and free, it can be a beautiful thing. Yep. Or it can turn us into a system of extracting value where everyone's running that rat race, just trying to get ahead. Got to grind, 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 just to stay at the same level you've always been. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I hope that was fun or informative. Hope I didn't lose everyone just talking about economics. I hope everyone got something from it. Yeah, Um, I mean, that's the beauty of of episodes, right? Yeah. You can always find the episodes that you like most and keep on going. But this has been a fun episode. You can find us on uh, what? Spotify, on, Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google. You can find us on YouTube or Rumble. Yep. You can find us uh, our socials, socials, follow our social media. On We got Facebook, Twitter. TikTok. I guess X. Kind of TikTok. X, yeah. Instagram. All the things. Check out dualitycheck.net. Get involved in the conversation. Send us an email. Let send us know what you think on these topics. We'd like to read some on the show and have a conversation. About your philosophy on sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Is a hot dog <laughs> a sandwich? Hosts at dualitycheck.net. All right, y'all. Take care. Later.